This is Matt Raymond from the Library of Congress. Each year, tens of thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its seventh year, this free event held on the National Mall, Saturday, September 29th, will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even those not attending the National Book Festival in person can access the event online. Pre-recorded interviews with well-known authors will be available through the National Book Festival website in podcast format. To download, you can visit www.loc.gov slash bookfest. We're now privileged to talk with a writer who is local to the Washington, D.C. area and a number one New York Times best-selling author for the past decade, David Baldacci. Mr. Baldacci's famous thrillers have been translated into more than 40 languages and sold in more than 85 countries. He's the author of 12 award-winning novels. Mr. Baldacci's latest book, Simple Genius, explores a very real technological race that's going on in our world right now, and also includes a hunt for hidden treasure rumored to be buried in Bedford, Virginia. Mr. Baldacci, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, from where I'm sitting right now, Bedford, Virginia isn't too far of a drive. Maybe you can offer me some clues as to where that treasure is. <laughs> yeah, it's a very complicated sort of clue I could offer you that has befuddled uh, some of the best minds in the cryptolytic field. And I, I'm not sure that I, I would be the best person to let you uh, in on any secrets of how to find the treasure. But I would say that if you go down to Bedford, Virginia, please get permission of the property owners before you go on there and start digging because you might find uh, some buckshot sailing over your head. Well, good advice for anybody. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Baldacci, you, you've been a frequent participant at the National Book Festival. In fact, you've been quite an emissary and representative, actually, for the Library of Congress. Why do you think this event is an important one for people to attend? Well, I, you know, it's our, our world today is so dominated by you know, athletes and musicians and actors and actresses and the book world where so much creativity is established and feeds all those other types of uh, fields uh, is often overlooked. But I know that there are millions of book lovers out there. We just don't have enough venues to allow them to express their enthusiasm. And the National Book Festival is a perfect place to allow people from all over the country to come to Washington, D.C. and celebrate books and reading and the power of creativity. And I think that's what it's, why it's such a magnet, and I think that's why it's so important. I wish we had more of these events across the country, but at least we have a superb National Book Festival here. You mentioned creativity, and you started writing creatively at a very early age. Do you have any advice, uh, perhaps, for any young writers who might be looking for inspiration as they're coming up? I would tell them to read a lot. Um, you know, don't go and get self-help books from the library or the bookstore. You can go to the library and check out the masters for free and sort of break down your favorite books, why you love them so much. Because really, you have to study the elements and the craft of writing and, and what goes into making a great book, great characters. Well, how do you create a great character? It's, you know, minute detail by minute detail or narrative pacing, narrative drive, how you write believable dialogue that sounds real as opposed to being wooden. So if you read a lot, as I did when I was a child, and became mesmerized by storytelling with words, all of a sudden you feel a real passion for wanting to do it yourself. All kids want to be creative. Um, Oftentimes, when they reach adulthood, the creativity has been pounded out of them as they sort of go off and, and do whatever job they're in. But if you don't lose that creativity uh, as you grow up and you maintain a passion for both reading and writing, uh, I think those are essential elements if you want to carve a career as a writer. 
Now, you've talked in the past about your, your sort of transition from one career into another, and you have a bit of a non-traditional background in that you were a lawyer for nine years. How do you think uh, the career of being a lawyer and a fiction writer have complemented each other, and how did you find time to write while you were practicing law? Well, luckily, I didn't need a whole lot of sleep. When I was a kid, I carried morning newspapers for seven years, but when I was 11 till I was 18, so I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning every morning, 365 days a year. And But aside from that, if you really have the passion to do it, uh, you'll find the time. And many writers who aren't published yet, they carve out little niches of time throughout the day, usually late at night or very early in the morning, because that's the time for them to have the outlet uh, that they need for their creativity. During the day, I was a lawyer, and I was paid to write things for other people. But at night, you know, the middle of the night when I wrote, that was my outlet. And I would race down the stairs to my little cubbyhole and sit down and start creating my fictional worlds. And it was such a, an amazing outlet for me, and one that I needed very much because, you know, I didn't hate being a lawyer, but it certainly wasn't what, the way I wanted to spend my life. I wanted to be a full-time writer and and but that passion carried me through a lot of rejections, years of disappointments. So that passion is kind of like a body armor that, you know, the bad things bounce off. And you really need that because you're going to get rejected. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be frustrated if you want to have a career as a writer. Now, who were some of your influences either in terms of books or authors when, when you were growing up? And are, are there any um, authors or books that you and your children today enjoy reading together? Yeah, we, um, I had a lot of influences growing up. You know, I grew up in Virginia, so I had a lot, read a lot of the typical Southern fiction writers, everybody from Walker Percy to, to Lee Smith, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, uh, Truman Capote, even Faulkner, and, uh, and Harper Lee, obviously. And, but, uh, I also grew up reading the likes of uh, Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigator the series about three kids who were detectives and all the Agatha Christie works and all the Conan Doyle works, including horror stories that he wrote in addition to the Sherlock Holmes tales. And it's just a passion for good storytelling and weaving a plot and making people believe that what you're writing down is something they really need to read and enjoy. I like to both entertain and inform in my novels. And even though I write fiction, I do a lot of research for everyone. I sort of approach it like a, a brief that I'm compiling for a legal case, and I do the research. And I think that level of authenticity um, brings added pleasure uh, for the person who's reading the book because it allows them to think that, you know, I'm learning something at the same time that I'm being entertained. And our kids um, read a lot. Our house is filled with books, as you can imagine. We just finished the Deathly Hallows, Hallows, the latest Harry Potter adventure. We listened to it on tape and then read the books separately. Um, and we discuss them and talk about them. And sometimes if my kids read a book and they don't like the ending, I'll tell them to go write another ending, and then we can talk about it and see why they think theirs is better. Again, <laughs> kids really love to be creative. And if kids emulate their parents, and I have so many parents who come up to me and say, I can't get my kids to read. They're always on the computer. And my first question is, well, do you read? And they say, well, you know, I get home and I've got emails to send off, so I usually am on the computer. And I said, well, if you're on the computer, your kid is on the computer. If you're reading a book, you get to read a book, make it a family affair. Absolutely. You, you talked a little bit earlier about um, uh, good writers having details and realistic dialogue. You've been credited really by top government officials for getting it right in terms of your fiction. Uh, very realistic, really an absorbing kind of experience. Can you talk about your research process? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. When I, when I approach um a book. I look at all the different subject matters that I have to sort of try to master if I'm going to write this novel. 
and then I will sort of break it down into subject by subject, and then who will I get to talk to that will inform me about this? What sort of books do I need to read beforehand to prepare myself so I can talk intelligently with these people in these different fields? And when I go out, I don't go out with a series of questions. Um, I go out more as a conversationalist, and I'll sit down with people in various fields and just have a conversation about you know the story that I'm writing. I'll tell them some of the plot. What do they think about it? Uh, do they agree with it or not agree with it? How would they do it differently? You know, why do they do their job? What's in their heart and head when they're when they're out there doing something like a secret service agent flying all over the world and willing to sacrifice his or her life uh, for the president? Things like that. Anybody can write about the hardware. You know, you can do the, the Tom Clancy stuff and write in, in great detail about uh, you know missiles and guns and tanks and planes. Not to take away from that, but for me, you know, I write some of that in my novels, but I want to get into the hearts and heads of the people and do the sorts of work that I find fascinating. And then at the end of the day, you get all this research mass, you realize as a fiction writer, you have to leave 99% of it out because you're not writing a textbook. And I have to take that 99%, synthesize it down into 1% that'll go into the book, integrate it completely throughout the novel in little bits and pieces, a lot of dialogue here, a narrative paragraph there. Because the last thing you wanted to write is a flip book, and a flip book is where writers did a lot of research, very proud of it, doesn't want to leave any of it out, doesn't want to take the time to integrate it, takes a big chunk of it and sticks it right in the middle of the book, and the reader's reading along and bumps into this morass and realizes what it is, and they flip, 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 flip past all that stuff to get back to the story. So um, when you're writing fiction, you have to do research and then have to sort of swallow your pride and realize you have to leave most of it out. Now, you came to the library last year around the time your book, The Collectors, came out, which, of course, the, the Library of Congress was almost a central character in that book yeah. uh, as, as part of our Books and Beyond series. And you talked about, in your research process, actually a specific story about a conversation that was overheard on a train. I wonder if, if you might be able to share that. Yes, I was, uh, it was sort of a very humbling experience for me. I was uh, on an Amtrak Acela train. I was sharing a table with two businessmen I didn't know, and they were on their phones and doing work, and I was on my cell phone, and I was calling a medical examiner in the Bronx in New York who's a friend of mine, and she sort of specializes in an area that I needed to uh, write about uh, in a novel I wrote called Split Second. And all I wanted to do on the phone was to make an appointment with her to meet with her face-to-face when I got to New York. Unfortunately, she told me she was leaving the country in a couple of hours to go overseas on a special assignment and would be gone for several weeks. So I could either talk to her then on the phone or I would have to wait until she got back. So I went through my series of questions. My first question to her, well, you know, here's how I want to kill the guy. And she, you know, and I explained my poisoning technique and then I told her I had to be sure that, you know, the police wouldn't even know that I killed him because obviously the murderer wanted to get away. And then I said I had to be further, you know, guaranteed that the medical examiner, someone like yourself, will be fooled as though I did away with this person. And I asked her a few more questions and she gave me a few more answers. And I ended the conversation by saying, I have to tell you, doctor, if I ever need to kill anybody else, I'm just going to be sure to call you. <laughs> and uh, then I hung up and I looked up and the poor guy who was diagonally across from me had spilled his coffee from his neck to his lap and the other guy sitting across from me was just staring at me with his hands up in the air and uh, then I saw the Amtrak you know stewards coming towards me and uh, it was a long day I didn't get to New York for quite a while (laughs) so the the last acknowledgement in split second because of that you know fiasco uh, it was a public apology to any passengers in the Amtrak Acela train who might have overheard me talking about that, and I apologize to them. Immortalized in print. That's great. Uh, if, if, we could t- if we could talk about another one of your previous books for a second, and you mentioned Harper Lee earlier, 
your book, yeah. Wish You Well, has um, been compared favorably, of course, to the classic To Kill a Mockingbird, and, and you've said it's the one you get the most fan mail for. Why do you think this novel has touched so many people, and what goes into the decision to write such a personal story that's linked to your own family history? Well, to take the, the last question first, it was a very difficult one because it was uh, so different from anything that I had written before, and it was personal because I was dealing with past lives of uh, my ancestors um, and past generations of people that I, I knew. Um, but it was a story, I think, that I was in many ways born to write because as a child growing up, my grandmother, maternal grandmother, lived with us for the last 10 years of her life, and I listened to all these stories about the mountains at her knee, my mother talked to him about it, too, although she was a little more uh, reluctant to talk about her life there. And we visited the mountain several times when I was a child, and there was just sort of this uh, instant uh, attachment to it for me. So rustic, so wild, you know, it's different than anything I'd ever experienced before. And I felt over the years that I had to write the story at some point. It was just sort of bursting inside of me. So that's why I decided to write Wish You Well. Um but in it, it was so different in many ways, but it had so many universal themes in it. And I think that's why people have uh, become so attached to it and write me so often about it. And it has themes of being an outsider, and at some point in their lives, everyone is an outsider. They don't feel like there's a place where they belong. They feel very alone. There is uh, dealing with grief and tragedy, uh, abrupt departure of people that you love from your life and they'll be gone forever, and you have to learn to adapt and to deal with that. And then, you know, learning to just live in a totally different place and also to look inside yourself and, and, and make the, the answer to the question, how much do you love someone? And will you love someone so much that you can face the truth of yourself that you've been denying all along, mm -hmm. that you have been, you know, saying, I'm not going to say this, I'm not going to admit this even to myself. Uh, that's a very difficult decision to make, particularly if you're a young child who's moving from girls. Uh, early adulthood and there are so many uh, elements and themes in the book that I think people could find something they could relate to strongly and it's a very emotional very dramatic book in many ways um, and it, I think it hits every emotion that people have and uh, it can make you laugh it can make you cry it can make you ponder things in your own life and it was that sort of a book I think that really stuck with people and they wanted to talk to me about it and, and comment about it and uh, pass it on to generation after generation. I've had so many great-grandmothers, you know, grandfathers, mothers, fathers, who have passed the book on to family, friends, children, grandchildren, because they want people to understand that the lives that came before are critically important uh, to the futures that their own descendants will have, and that life is not so much different that, uh, you know, Everybody um, who experiences loss and happiness and tragedy and sadness and things like that, well, all of our ancestors experience those very same emotions and went through those very same things. So those are lessons to be learned, and that connection uh, amongst generations really I think is what constitutes our humanity in many ways. Mm -hmm. Now, earlier we mentioned uh, the, the Library of Congress being something of a, a character in the collectors. Now, in Wish You Well, the Virginia landscape is almost one of the novel's characters. Can you talk about some of the places that inspire you and, and how, how those inspire your writing? Yeah, place is very important for me. And I think I, I think I certainly got that from writing, from reading so much Southern fiction because in Southern fiction, place is critically important, and it really does become another character, fully defined and, and fleshed out character in most novels like that. So for me, I like to visit places that I write about. I've been all over Virginia. I've been all over Washington D.C. 
and you absorb atmosphere. You see little details in your mind's eye sometimes that reading about it or talking to someone about it, you would miss. You know, with the Camel Club, Mount Zion Cemetery, most people don't know about it. But it's in, tucked away in a little corner of Georgetown. Uh, not many people go there. It's not very well known. There are lots of other much better known cemeteries nearby, but it was just a little piece of grass with a few tombstones that really caught my eye, and that's why I wanted to set Oliver Stone and the Camel Club you know, there in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got back from Europe where I did a book tour over there, and one reason I did this book tour and went to the countries that I did is that the book that I'm working on right now, um, the same character, and the character in the book takes the same journey. And uh, I took a high-speed ferry across the Irish Sea because he did. I took a, an express train from Wales to London because this character did the same thing. I visited Amsterdam because he goes to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And I've been to those places before, but I wanted to, to see it again, and I wanted to walk the streets and talk to the people. And, and an author has to have a very discerning eye, and when you walk by... You have to see exactly what's there, a doorway or an alleyway or a street or a light or a person on a corner. And then all of a sudden throw in a bit of imagination and realize the potential of what could be out there if you change the facts a little bit and come up and come at it with a different angle. And that's why I always try to do whenever I'm traveling anywhere, I never know when a story or idea or a place or a location or an element might strike me. And all of a sudden I realize I could use that in a story. I do that all the time. I can't turn it off. just a part of me. Hmm. Now, we were talking just a little bit ago about Wish You Well, and another, uh, I guess, special thing about that novel is that it was uh, uh, a name that you have now brought to your foundation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your foundation and, and why why you set it up. Well, the Wish You Well Foundation was founded about four years ago, and my wife and I had given to lots of charities over the years, uh, and sort of here and there and everywhere. Um and we wanted to sort of focus our giving. And uh, obviously uh, a, a charitable endeavor that's very important to us is uh, literacy. The United States is deemed to be a very high liter- literacy nation. In reality, it's not. There are the, nas- the na- last national literacy census survey was done in 2003. And of the nearly 200 million adults in the United States, they graded them on five levels of literacy, five being the highest, one being the lowest. 100 million adults have population graded the two lowest levels of literacy. Uh, 50 million were totally illiterate, another 50 million were about barely literate. That's a problem in a democratic nation. That's a problem in any country. Um, so when you think of the United States as fast becoming an illiterate nation, most people poo-poo that and say that's preposterous, particularly up in an area like Washington, D.C., where everybody has you know five advanced degrees and can speak multiple languages. But that's an anomaly in this country, and that's not how the United States is anymore. So the Wish You Well Foundation, we take uh, grant applications from organizations all over the country. We have a board of directors. We meet quarterly. We go through all these applications. We fund programs. Um, and we scrutinize their operations. We ask them to send us financial information, operational information, and we do that because sometimes, let's say, we'll see an organization that's relying too heavily upon one or two donors. Uh, then we will tell them we will give you the money, but it's got to be a matching grant, and you have to find that matching grant from somebody else that you haven't used yet before. And that'll makes them go out and, you know, redouble their efforts on their fundraising because you really have to have a strong fundraising base. You can't rely on one or two people or organizations because they might go away. Or we might see operationally they might be doing something that's very close to another organization uh, or that would be very complementary to another organization in their location. They might be very heavy on creative content. The other organization might have a lot of tutors, and we try to put them together. 
And we funded programs in about 28 states and counting thus far, and uh, from big programs to small programs. And last year we started the Feeding Body and Mind program where we partnered with America's Second Harvest, which runs all the nation's food banks, because poverty and illiteracy go hand in hand. It's the mm-hmm. same target audience. So in my book signing um, tour for the collectors, we had these big white boxes I brought to all the book signings, and we collected about 35,000 books. Whatever city I'm in, there's a shipping label in the box, and it's, as soon as it's full, UPS or FedEx picks it up and takes it right to that local area food bank. So if I'm in Phoenix, it goes to Phoenix. If I'm in Seattle, it goes to Seattle. In the Simple Genius Book Tour uh, this year in April, we collected over 150,000 books just on my book tour. Wow. We've got the, the Authors Union has endorsed it now, and the American Publishers Association has endorsed it. We've got all their the major publishers in New York. They're on board with it. They're going to get all their authors to go out with the big white boxes, and we're going to start recycling and collecting tens of millions of books, getting them to the local food banks and getting them out to people who really need them. Because our philosophy is, and I think the food bank has signed on to this, they think it's a fantastic program. All their food banks, their common response has been send, it, send as many books as you possibly can. You need food to survive, but it doesn't get you out of that cycle of poverty. It just keeps you marching in place. But books can get you out of that cycle of poverty. And uh, particularly for um, parents who are impoverished and illiterate who have children, the last thing you want is for those kids when they're adults to be going into a food bank with their kids. And that's just how that cycle works. Mm-hmm. So books and reading and literacy can bust them out of that cycle. And that's what we're trying to do. And, of course, uh, your foundation, one of the Library of Congress's uh, reading promotion partners, we appreciate that. What is the website for your foundation? It's uh, wishywellfoundation.org, and, uh, and it's feedingbodyandmind.com. Great. If we could turn the clock back just a little bit to your first novel, Absolute Power, which uh, obviously everybody knows, very successful, made into a major motion picture with Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman. Talk a little bit about your involvement in that film, and as sort of a segue, I hear at least all kinds of rumors about maybe new projects for the screen, big screen or small screen. Can you talk about any of those as well? Sure. Um, Absolute Power was, you know, it it was a total anomaly because things don't happen that smoothly in Hollywood. They just don't. I don't know what happened. It was, you know, all the moons were in alignment, Clint Eastwood signed on, and then everything was perfect. Um, that's just, uh, you know, not how it really works out there. My involvement was minimal, although it was very fun and, and I had a lot of enthusiasm for it. Uh, I worked some with uh, Bill Goldman, William Goldman, who did the screenplay. He came down to D.C. and we went around to some of the locations in the book, and he would call me from time to time while he was writing the script. I could hear him, like, typing the, key, the keys on the keyboard, and he was asking my thoughts and impressions and opinions about different things. We went to the filming, uh, some of it in Baltimore and Washington, so we have to meet all the stars, which was terrific. I mean, who wouldn't want to meet uh, you know, somebody like Clint Eastwood? And uh, so that was a great experience and went to all the world premieres in L.A. and D.C. and in London. Uh, and it was great, I mean, to see, you know, your work up on the screen, even though they had to change the, the movie from the book dramatically for different reasons. And I've written scripts and, and worked out in Hollywood some, so I understand that they're very much apples and oranges. And uh, so I, we do have some projects that are percolating out there, and hopefully one of them will stick. We've um, I've sold the rights of the Christmas Train to Lifetime Television, and they're supposed to be filming uh, that for a Lifetime Christmas movie in Canada in January and February to be on air in Christmas of '08. The Camel Club were in discussions to turn that into a network television series. Right. Um, and, and the same with um, my King and Maxwell series, Simple Genius, and now we're getting a split second. 
and the winner right now is that with two different actresses, uh, two different screenwriters, we have the producer on board who was one of the producers who departed, uh, who is working very uh, fervently to try to get the winner made into a major motion picture. So hopefully some of those projects will stick. Um, there's never a guarantee. My my um, rule now is that I'll believe it when I see it on the screen and it's actually going to happen. Um, but we're working hard to put these things together, and I've different, taken a different tack. We don't send books out to studios anymore because they just don't read one, two, and they don't really make movies anymore. And you have to sort of go out and gather the elements you need: the producer, a director, an actor, a writer, and then go into the studio with a take on the material. This is how we would turn it into a movie, mm. and the studio, you know, hopefully will say, "Okay, I agree with that. Here's the check. Go make the movie." And that's how we do it. Well, if the Camel Club comes to television, and we'll certainly uh, welcome them into the real Library of Congress as opposed to the, the <laughs> fictional version, so we'd, uh, we're yeah. eager for that. Um, yes. You said Apples and Oranges, and you've written seven screenplays. How is the process of writing a novel different than writing for the screen? You have wide latitude as a novelist, and you're sort of the master and commander. No one questions what you do, and at the end of the day, your decision is the final one and absolute. You have absolute power, really. Um, with a screenplay, you are sort of at the bottom of the beating chain, um, and you are beholden and answer to uh, higher powers than yourself. And uh, it's a director's town in D.C. or in, in, in Hollywood, and you just have to sort of go to those marching orders. And it's a very technical format for writing a story, and there are a million different things that you have to understand when you're writing it. Uh, the central uh, structure is three acts. Every movie you'll ever go to see is built on a three-act structure. The first um, ten pages sets up the major characters and the underlying dilemma that they have to overcome, the obstacles. The first act is about 20 pages or 20 minutes. The second act carries the most action in the film. It's probably 60 pages, 60 minutes long. You have a third act that might be 15 to 25 minutes long and then three to five-minute resolution at the end. And um, you have to work within those parameters. If your first act is 50 minutes long, you have an immediate problem. Mm. Uh, if you haven't set up the dilemma within the first 10 minutes of the film, you have a problem. And every scene has to have at least two reasons why it's in there. You, when you go into a scene, you have to know how you're going to exit the scene. And uh, I've been out in directors' meetings and producer meetings out in Hollywood where they're challenged. You know, they will challenge me on every word that I've written in the script. You know, why is it there? Why is that person saying it? Why is that narrative piece here in the first act shouldn't be in the second act, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it makes you a better writer because it makes you think about things that you otherwise might not have thought about. It makes you think at a level of detail that is extraordinary, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think it's actually made me a better novelist. But at the end of the day, I enjoy writing novels more because you really do have the final say, and you can write the story the way you want to write it, and you can write it as long as you want to write it. Because a screenplay, if you get much past, for a romantic comedy, if you get much past 105 pages, that's a problem. For a thriller mystery, if you get past 120 pages, that's a problem. So if you, you know, bring in a script that's 140, 150 pages long, that's, you know, two and a half hours, and it's a romantic comedy, uh, nobody's going to even look at it. Yeah. Now, all these different genres, um, screenplays, novels, and, and you've also ventured into writing for children with your Freddy and the French Fries series. What was your yes. inspiration for Freddy, um, and are you planning to write any more children's books in the future? The Freddy and the French Fries series came about as bedtime stories for my kids, because when you're a writer, it's not enough just to read to your kids at night. They expect you, because you're so creative and you have this great imagination, to come up with stories. And my my at that time, six-year-old daughter sort of challenged me to, you know, come up with a really cool bedtime series for them. And so just off the top of my head, it was Friday and the French fries. And um, I told them those stories over the years. 
And uh, then my uh, my kid's school had an auction. They have an auction every year to, to raise money. It's a parochial school to raise money for the school. And my wife had the idea, why don't you write down the first Freddy story go and read it to the first graders. And back then, my son was in first grade, and I did, and I did all the stupid voices, and I made a complete fool of myself, but the kids loved it. And... Um, then we, my wife worked with each of the kids in the first grade. We gave them a page of the story, and they did an illustration for that page in their own hand. They bound them like a book, and they were given the illustrated credit, and the book was auctioned off the school auction and brought in a lot of money for the school. And I thought it would end there, but one day I was talking with my agent in New York, and he asked me what I was doing, and I told him about this silly little story that I'd written for the school, and he asked me to send it up to him, and I did, and he really liked it. And I sent it to Little Brown, and they really liked it. Uh, so we did two of those books. And they were fun. They were very cathartic for me because it gave me a break from, you know, some of the other types of books that I've been writing over the years. My older brother, Rudy, who is an, an artist, he did the illustrations for the Freddy the Fridge Five series. It was a lot of fun to work with him. I don't know if I'll write any more of those. I mean, I'm really glad that I wrote the first two. Uh, it was just fun to be able to write something that, you know, my kids at early age could read and that other kids who might read them and then be turned on to other books in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met a lot of children's authors and they say, you know, we're critically important to your career because uh, if kids don't read as kids, they're not going to read your books when they get big. <laughs> and I agree with them. <laughs> Well, David Baldacci, uh, we greatly appreciate your time today, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, about your next novel, Stone Cold, which is hitting bookstores in November. Any uh, secrets you can share with us from that novel? Well, I left the I left an enormous cliffhanger at the end, and the collectors and I've been getting so many emails from people who are furious about it. They want me to, you know, if I don't <laughs> write this book soon, they will hunt me down and beat me to death. I guess. Um, Stone Cold will, will take care of all the issues that I left hanging in the collectors. Uh, Annabelle Conroy, <clears throat> Alex Ford is back, the Secret Service agent. He plays a much more prominent role in Stone Cold. And you'll learn a lot more about Oliver Stone, about his past. And that past comes back to haunt him in Stone Cold, finally. And there's, you know, quite a few sort of titanic struggles in this book. And there are several endings in this book, too as I worked through all the baggage of his past. and uh, mm. But I think I was shocked by the ending when I wrote it. I didn't think the book was going to end the way that it did. But uh, So I think if I'm shocked, I think the readers will be shocked as well. But uh, it'll be well worth the wait. And the cliffhanger that I left going and the collectors, people will everything will be answered. Very intriguing. And do you often take cues from your readers in terms of their reaction that, that influences uh, what you'll end up writing? Well, I, you know, people always, I was on a panel one time with a bunch of other authors and the question was, who do you write for? And every other author on the panel said, I write for my readers. And then it got to me and I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean this to sound selfish, but I write for myself. And if you write for readers, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but sometimes you try to satisfy what they want. And some readers like predictability. They want their, you know, particularly with the recurring characters, they want them to do the same sort of thing in every book. And some writers cater to that or the same sort of subject matter. You don't get outside the little comfortable box that you have. With me, I try to chase things that I find interesting or that I don't know a lot about but I want to know a lot about. And um, so when I write for myself, um, I'm hoping that because I have passion for what I'm writing about, that, that passion will come through in the pages and entertain uh, people and make them want to read my books. Um, but I do, I have to write for myself because you spend a year or longer of your life with each project, you better be interested in it. And if you're trying to cater to somebody else's desires and wants, the same level of passion doesn't come through because you're, you're always, you know, it's what they want, it's not what you want. And as a writer, I think you need to write about things that you want to write about. Well, David Baldacci, thank you once again. 
Um, and we look forward to hearing more from you at the National Book Festival on Saturday, September 29th on your National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. If you want more details in the list of participating authors, you can visit www.loc.gov slash bookfest. This is Matt Raymond from the Library of Congress. Thank you for listening.